grab a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Been walking through 1 Corinthians this fall uh, to the idea of fan or follower. There's a difference between just uh, cheering for Jesus from the sidelines and really getting into the game and following him and surrendering ourselves. And as you look through 1 Corinthians, really what it's about over and over and over again is about Lord, Lord, Lord. It's mentioned many times in 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians challenges our self-centeredness about me, and it challenges me to live with other other people in mind, especially in the kingdom of, 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 of God in the church of Jesus Christ. There's a couple things that are difficult topics to talk about, and Paul has already addressed one of those, and that's the issue of sex. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, over into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks about that issue, and he talks about how we can honor God with our bodies and honor God with the ways that he's created us and live in those ways that he's created us. Another topic that's difficult to talk about sometimes is money. And so Paul is going to address that topic today as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, not only is money a difficult topic to talk about, but you put preachers and money together, and it's a real difficult topic sometimes. But Paul is going to hit it head on in chapter 9. And sometimes we think that this chapter seems out of place. He goes from talking about different uh, uh, relationships of married and singles and widows. And then he talks last week and it challenges us that we are to love other people and to not demand that we have our way and to put other people first and be willing to, and, and be willing to concede those things that, that are going to cause someone uh, harm spiritually, whatever that is, to destroy someone, Paul said. And we, we give up those rights And so he kind of helps us navigate through, well, some things are just preference, and I don't need to worry about those. But what are those spiritual things that are going to destroy someone? I need to really be very careful about those. And so then we get into chapter 9. So what Paul does is he's continuing his example of how we give up our rights for another person or for the, the church in this case. So Paul really is following this theme as you see him move along. He says in chapter 8, I, I give up my rights. He said, I will never uh, eat meat again if it's going to cause a brother or sister to be harmed spiritually. And so now in chapter 9, remember when Paul wrote Corinthians, he didn't write chapter and verse numbers. The chapter and verse numbers are great hindrances oftentimes to us understanding the scripture and sometimes we stop and we think, well, now Paul is a new, has a new thought. But really, it's his train and it's his flow of thought that comes from chapter 8 into chapter 9. John Calvin writes this, Paul confirms from actual fact what he has just been saying, that he would never taste meat all his life rather than cause a brother to stumble. At the same time, he makes it plain that he cannot demand anything from them which he himself had not put into practice. Here's the great thing about Paul. When he writes to the church in Corinth, wherever church he writes to, and he writes hard things and demands hard things of them, guess who is the first person who has already put into practice those principles? Paul. And so here he is. When he says, I'm, uh, uh, he says, I'm asking you, Corinthians, to do something, he says, I've already done it. And so he's given a personal illustration at the end of chapter 8. He said, I, I'm not going to eat meat if it's going to cause somebody to stumble. And now in chapter 9, he's going to talk about his rights as an apostle. Calvin goes on. There's no doubt that natural justice requires that anybody who imposes some obligation on others should observe it in himself. You know that old saying, do what I say, don't do what I do? But Paul says, do what I say and do what I do. Remember earlier in Corinthians, he said, follow my example as I follow Jesus. And so Paul says, I'm not just asking you to do this. I'm also doing what I'm asking you to do. And so he is asking us in in chapter 8, now in chapter 9, to do things that he's already done. Calvin says, but a, a Christian teacher above all should discipline himself in this way so that man may always see teaching backed up by the example of his life. And so now Paul in Corinthians chapter 9 has this idea of Christian freedom that's tempered by this voluntary giving up of rights. And you're going to see this with Paul, that Paul could have demanded things. He could have demanded to have it his way, but he gave it up. Now, some background uh, to the the situation in Corinth is there were uh, powerful patrons in Corinth at the time. And what a patron would do is a patron would uh, hire some philosophers or hire some teachers or fund these philosophers and teachers. And so who do you think the patron was beholden to or the philosopher or teacher was beholden to? The patron. So the patrons, if I'm paying for you, Mr. Teacher, Mr. Philosopher, you are what? You are now beholden to me. 
You have to have a, a, a special uh, preference for me or deference to me because I'm paying for you. And so there was this political support or whatever kind of support. So that was the system in Corinth that these, these uh, wealthy Corinthians would be a patron. They would subsidize a teacher or subsidize a philosopher. And then that teacher or philosopher was to promote them and, and was to, encourage, uh, to uh, show a special preference for them. But Paul, what he does is, he says, I'm not like those patrons. I'm not like those philosophers. And so Paul in chapter 9 says, I have all of these rights, but I don't want these rights that I have to hinder the work of the gospel. So let's pick up and see what he says. In chapter 9 and verse 1, am I not free? He had just said, I will never eat meat again if it's going to cause someone to stumble. He says, am I not free? What Paul is saying, I have every freedom to eat the meat. Remember, the problem or the, 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 uh, the, the situ- situation was this. There's only one God. Idols are nothing. Meat offered to idols is nothing. And so Paul says, I am free to eat that meat. He says, am I not free? Yes, he is free. But remember, Paul also said, just because I can do something doesn't mean I should do something because not everything is beneficial. And in the context of Corinthians, it, not everything is beneficial for other people. It's not that we're not talking health benefits. We're not talking beneficial illegally. We are talking not everything is beneficial because of the way that it impacts other people. Yes, I can raise my voice. I, I absolutely can. God's given me some volume on my vocal cords. But does, I mean, does that mean that just because I can raise my voice and scream and yell like a maniac that I should do that? Well, no, not if it's at the kids when I'm trying to discipline them, just because I can do something doesn't mean it's beneficial for them. And so Paul says, am I not free? It, it, it's this, this freedom. And then he, he asks these questions, and these are rhetorical questions that all have a yes response. Am I not apostle? Yes, Paul, you are. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes, Paul, you have. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Why, yes, the Corinthians are the result of Paul's work in the Lord. And so Paul asks these questions, and he says, all of these things, are these things not true? And the Corinthian church was the result of his work in the Lord. The church of Corinth was there because Paul had been there And he says, look, I want to show you and and, and prove to you that I do have these rights. I'm an an apostle. However, verse 2, even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Not everyone acknowledges Paul as an apostle. Remember the cause of divisions at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Some followed Paul, some followed Cephas, some followed Apollos. And there were some who said, who's Paul? He's not an apostle. I'm not going to listen to him. We tend to do that sometimes, don't we? We tend to dismiss people that are in authority sometimes. I don't have to listen to you. It's like when your kids are playing with somebody else's kids. And depending on the the somebody else's kids, if you discipline the whole group, the other person's kids said, I don't have to listen to you. You're not my parent. Yeah, but you're in my house. You're going to soon be out of my house if you don't listen, right? And we can do that. That's what the Corinthians were doing with Paul. You're not my apostle. And so Paul has this challenge, and he says that, that some people don't think that, that I am, this, uh, that I am uh, their apostle. And so this is my defense. So this is the background that Paul's working under. The patrons who would hire philosophers, the fact that some people didn't think Paul was an apostle, and so he wasn't going to barge into this church in Corinth and just demand his way. Verse 3, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Now Paul gets very personal. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lacks the right not to work for a living? There were four major ways that ancient philosophers and religious teachers got their support. One was the patronage. They would have a household of a wealthy individual and they would gain a patron. Other ways that they raised money was charging fees for their teaching. Another way was through begging. And so they would go and beg, and you know, I'm just a poor philosopher, can you help a guy out? And the fourth way was by working. So those are the four major ways that people in Paul's teaching kind of position in Corinth could make their money. And so what Paul does is he has to defend his means of income because of these attacks against him in Corinth. Where's the first place that we generally go to the attack when we are having problems? Marriage problems. What's the first thing we start to uh, nitpick each other on? What's this charge on the credit card? 
What did you spend? How much did you spend for those shoes? How much did you spend for that car? Is that a new this? Is that a new that? You see, the money isn't the issue. The money is the symptom of the issue. But isn't that kind of where we go sometimes? We're like, all this other underlying stuff seems to come out in the finances. That's just the way that we start to bludgeon each other. And that Paul knew that with the Corinthians. There were some who didn't like him. And so the way that they would attack was through finances. And so Paul then uh, states his defense. He says, we have every right. To, to have uh, food, and we have every right to, to drink, and we have every right to have a wife. We have all these rights, and, but Paul is making a statement to this the church in Corinth that I am not using these rights. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? What Paul is saying is, look, in every other profession, the person who does the work gets to enjoy the fruit of the work. And so he says a soldier doesn't just volunteer uh, uh, for free. He, he, in fact, in Paul's day, they were conscripted. But even our volunteer uh, military today, you get paid. And so Paul was saying that. He says, if you plant a vineyard, you have the right to some of the grapes. And if you have a flock, you get to have some of the milk. And so all Paul was saying is, you all know this from life. When you work and you do something, you get the benefit from that. And so then he quotes the Old Testament. He says, do I say this on a merely human authority? Now he appeals to the Old Testament. For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading the grain. If you put a muzzle, if you've ever seen an ox, one of those muzzles, it's a... It's a that leather bag that goes over their mouth? Why would somebody muzzle the ox? Because if the ox gets hungry while it's working, it's going to start to want to eat the grain. But if you don't want to eat the grain, you put the muzzle over it, so it has to just do its work. And so what Paul is saying is that even in the Old Testament, it said, don't muzzle the ox. Allow the, allow the poor guy to eat while he's working. Don't make him go hungry while he's walking through this grain field. It's like if you're walking through Krispy Kreme donuts and your mouth is salivating and somebody puts a piece of duct tape on your mouth and says, don't you dare take that off. Oh, it smells so good. I want, no, you can't eat any. Or worse yet, if you're the guy in the back making the donuts, right? Don't touch those donuts. Put that thing over there. And Paul says, this is what the Old Testament is saying. Don't do that. You let, the, you let the ox eat some of the grain because it's just a benefit of the work he's doing. And he goes on, he says, um, the, the, the law says this, but is it about oxen that God is concerned? No. Surely, he says it for us, does he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. Paul says, it's not about the ox that that was written. That's the metaphor. That's the example. But really, God's more concerned about people than he is about the ox. And so what Paul is saying is this is written for us because the one who plows and the one who threshes using the farming illustration, he should be able to enjoy some of the fruit of his harvest. Now, Paul's laying out this meticulous argument. What he's saying is this, this, it's this working for a living. You uh, enjoy the fruit of your labor. And so what Paul is referring to is manual labor. And so what would happen is that Paul, because of what he is doing, that he should be able to uh, re- uh, receive some of the fruit of his labor. So here's what he says in verse 11. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Paul says, and he's using this example, he's using these arguments, and what he's saying is, listen, other people have used this right. They have sown not wheat, they are not uh, growing grapes, they are not raising sheep, but what they have done is they have sown a spiritual harvest among you. And Paul says this, don't we have the right, because we have sown a spiritual harvest, Uh, to have a material reward from you. Listen, you can't live on prayer. You need money to buy food to eat. Like you can't live on somebody's good wishes. And that's what Paul is saying. There's this spiritual element. And what did he just say? Corinthians, you 
our, our work in the Lord. You are my work in the Lord. You are believers because of me. You are now Christians because of me. And because of what I've sown into you, I have the right to have a material uh, compensation from you. He just gave all of these examples. And look what he says. If others have this right, shouldn't we have all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. What Paul, what the Corinthians were probably expecting Paul to say next is probably what we would expect him to say. Listen, the farmer can uh, enjoy the fruit of his labor. The vineyard uh, can enjoy the fruit of his labor. We have labored in you, and now we are to enjoy the fruit of our labor. And what Paul does is he upsets the apple cart. And he says, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Now he gets into the spiritual argument. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what was offered on the altar? Now, there is some debate. Was Paul talking about the temple in Jerusalem, or was he talking about the pagan temples? Remember in chapter 8, he just, started, he just talked about the food offered to idols. So either way, it doesn't really matter, because remember, the food, the meat that was offered to idols was, uh, was the leftover. Some of it was taken by the priests at the temple, and the leftover meat was then sold in the marketplace, or people could come in and dine. So either way, Paul, the, the, and it's the same thing. Even the temple in Jerusalem, when the meat was put in, what were the priests do? They stuck the fork in. And they would pull it out. And remember, there were the corrupt priests in the Old Testament. What would they do? They would go through, and they wouldn't just put the fork in and pull whatever came out. They looked for the best meat. Oh, man, there's got to be a prime cut in there somewhere. I don't want that old fatty piece of meat. And so uh, uh, they were choosing, and the Lord condemned them for that. So Paul says this. Those who work at the temple. So you Corinthians, you understand that. You, you with Jewish background, you also understand that, that it's right for the priest to eat from the temple. He says in verse 14, In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And so what he does is he's using all of these metaphors to build his case. Look what he says in verse 15. But I have not used any of these rights. Remember what Paul started? Am I not free? Don't I have rights? Can I do these things that I want? Yes, but I have not used these. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me, says, if I don't preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharged of the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Here's Paul's reward. That in preaching the gospel, I may offer free of charge and in so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. At the end of the day, Paul had to put his head on his pillow and be content with himself. And so what he says is, I'm not using this right because I want to be able to offer the gospel free of charge. He says that I am not using the things that I'm allowed to do. And I'm not using the rights and not giving the rewards because I have a bigger purpose in mind and I have a bigger plan in mind. And that is for your benefit, Corinthians. Doesn't that sound like chapter 8? The food offered to idols. I'm not going to eat meat if it's going to cost somebody else to be harmed. I'm not going to eat meat if it's going to cause someone else to stumble. And what Paul is saying, I'm not going to receive a monetary reward from you, Corinthians, because frankly, some of you don't like me. And I'm going to eliminate any reason for you not to continue to like me. And so when you bring a charge against me, you can't say, well, we're paying the guy, so we, he better do what we say, just like the patrons did with the philosophers in Corinth. Paul wanted to eliminate that excuse. He wanted to eliminate that reason. But the bigger picture was what? He already knew some people were questioning his apostolic authority, so he did not want to add add salt to the wound by saying, oh, you don't like me, you still need to pay me. What he was doing was in his pastoral heart, he was ministering to them. And he said, I want to also eliminate any reason that you have for not fully embracing me, not fully embracing the gospel, not fully surrendering all of your lives to Jesus. And so Paul was using his for, foregoing these rights in order to not put a further restraint on the Corinthians. But Paul does have a reward, and his reward is this, 
And he preaches the gospel without payment from the Corinthians. You see, those puffed up believers were criticizing Paul's behavior in chapter 8. Remember the know-it-alls in chapter 8? Boy, those uh, people in chapter 8, they knew it all. There's one God, idols are nothing. Um, the, the meat offered to idols is nothing. So I'm going to go eat the meat in the temple. I don't care what it does to you. They knew it all. Now here the know-it-alls are still in chapter 9. Who are you? You're not our apostle. We know better. We know it all. And so Paul was eliminating this excuse. And so those believers, right, who had this, they had, listen, they had correct doctrine. They knew in chapter 8 that there's only one God. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. They had the doctrine down, but their lifestyle didn't match the doctrine. Remember, the goal of right knowledge is what? Is love. Knowledge puffs up, but what does love do? Love builds up. And so we learn and we grow and we know in order to love better, not to be puffed up. And if our knowledge is is not causing us to be more like Jesus, we need to go back through all the knowledge that we have and start to pray, Lord, help me use this to become more like Jesus. If people don't see us as people who, who love, who are willing to lay down our our rights for the uh, fellow believers, right? Who are willing to say, you know what? You can have your your way in this situation. If people just see us as know-it-alls and we have all the correct answers, but we don't have love, guess what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13? We are just noisy gongs. And I'm afraid sometimes that all people hear is clashing symbols and they don't experience the warmth of our love. I know Jesus was born of a virgin. I know he resurrected from the dead. I know he's coming back again. I know, I know. And all they hear is the clanging of the cymbals and don't experience our love. And Paul's addressing that in 1 Corinthians. That's why it's so hard. It's it's easier to be a fan. What does a fan do? A fan paints their body and their team colors. They get some noisemakers and they start to yell. And what is that? Clanging cymbals, the gongs. But what does a follower do? A follower loves. So Paul was saying, Corinthians, I am going to love you. And so it's, it's this point where Paul says, I'm doing the thing that I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to forego your rights. And so now I'm foregoing a right that I have. This, Paul had this, had this uh, job on the side. He was a tent maker, right? He, was a, he had this place where he could, he could get the income, but he didn't have to rely on the Corinthians because of this specific situation uh, in Corinth. Now you say, what in the world? <laughs> what in the world does that have to do with me? Paul's an apostle, I get it. He planted the church in Corinth, I get it. Some people in Corinth didn't like him. He didn't want to demand uh, compensation from them because he didn't want to keep the pot stirred up, so he forego that, forewent that right, and so he could boast that he offered the gospel free of charge. Well, let's glean up what I think are a few things as we set the stage for 1 Corinthians 9 for what are some things that we each can put into practice in our own lives. And these are, I think, some muzzles, some questions we can ask ourselves. Because what does a muzzle do? A muzzle uh, affects the, or the effectiveness of our, of our words, right? Um, the, the effectiveness of our work. And sometimes I think we muzzle ministry. We put a, we put a lid on it. How, whatever whatever uh, idiom and metaphor you want to use, sometimes we do that. We throw, the, we throw the, the water on the fire instead of the gas sometimes because of these muzzles when it relates to how we view our service in the kingdom. And so here's some questions that we can ask ourselves, because Paul started off in chapter 9 asking some questions. And so here's some ministry muzzles I think that we can ask ourselves. And the first one is this. Does this hinder the gospel? One of the things that Paul said in verse 12 was this. We, we did not do this. We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. What if believers had that same idea in our lives that we will put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. I don't know what your thanksgivings was like. It might have been joyous. It might have been contentious. It might have been, you know, when you get families together, um, who says God doesn't have a sense of humor? He puts us in these families. And sometimes we can stand each other and sometimes we can't. But what if we had the mindset as believers, no matter how contentious it gets, no matter how awful it gets, that I want to make sure that I don't hinder the gospel by my words and my attitude and what I'm demanding from them. 
See, the problem is, we often hinder the gospel when we expect non-believers to act like believers. Paul already addressed that in 1 Corinthians. We look at the world and we say, why are they doing that? Because they're doing what they do. Paul says, you don't worry about them. You worry about you. You worry about the kingdom of God. You worry about those who have named the name of Jesus. Those are the people you are to worry about. You don't worry about them. But Paul is saying you worry about them in in a way to uh, uh, share the gospel, right? But we're not wanting them to behave properly until they know Jesus. And so sometimes our attitudes hinder the gospel. And Paul says, I'm going to take that. I'm going to remove that. Look what Ephesians says. I put it on your notes. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel. See what Paul said? I'm serving the gospel. The gospel is not serving me. I do whatever I can so that the gospel is heard. I'm not using the gospel to serve me. I'm, what Paul, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, what Paul is saying, I'm not using the gospel as a way to make money. I'm not doing that. The God, I'm serving it. I'm not making it serve me. Paul got his priorities straight. So Ephesians, he says that I became a servant by the gift of God's grace given through me, uh, through the working of his power. Although I'm the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. See what Paul said? There's a special gift that's been given to us. It's a gift to preach the gospel. And so what happens is we often take dividends from the kingdom instead of investing in the kingdom. We sometimes, if we're not careful, we can muzzle the gospel because it's what we can get out of the kingdom and not what we can put into the kingdom. How we can be served, not how I can serve. What others can do for me, not what I can do for others. What people are supposed to uh, uh, you know, teach me, not what I am supposed to teach others. See how that works? Oftentimes, we are dividend takers and not investment, investment makers in the kingdom. It's all about making me feel good and making me having my needs met. Listen, you don't come to church and you don't belong to the church to have your needs met. You come to church and belong to the church to meet someone else's needs. That's the way it works. And if you're just looking to have your needs met, you need to uh, look to ways to meet other people's needs. It's just, it's just spiritual selfishness is all it is. What's, it's for me, it's for me, it's for me. Because well, here's what happens. When you're meeting the needs of someone else, guess what happens? And they're meeting your needs as well. See how that works? It works all together like that. Occasionally, Christian ministry, we have seen that, has has this this prestige because of the financial reward. I've heard guys, when they go into ministry, especially if they've come from very large churches, and they're like, wow, man, I can get the four-bedroom house with the cars and all the stuff. What are they doing? The gospel is now serving them instead of them serving the gospel. They're looking for it to provide them with what they need, not to provide the gospel with what it needs. And oftentimes, when we see folks who are in ministry for the money, it comes along with compromises. It comes along with different ways that the gospel is compromised. There's political entanglements, and there's all kinds of things that go along with that. And Paul says, no, 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 no. This is not going to hinder the gospel. I'm not going to do that. So we need to ask ourselves that question. Is, what I'm, is, is, is how I view the kingdom, how I view other people, how I view the community of believers that I'm a part of, is what I'm doing hindering the gospel? Because that's ultimately the point. The point is the gospel. The point is, for Jesus said, I came what? To seek and to save the lost. That's what we are here to do. We're not here to feel good. We're not here to sing together. We're not here to have some warm fellowship. Although those are great things, we are here for the gospel. At the end of the day, if someone doesn't hear the gospel, they're, they're, they're lost. And so all that needs to be geared for that. Now, Paul also challenges us in a way with the second ministry muzzle is this. Do I serve from compulsion or for compensation? This is kind of related to the first one, but it is this. Paul says in verse 16, For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 
Now, there is a compulsion here. Paul says in Romans 1, 14, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm also eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. What does he say? I have an obligation. Look what he says in Luke 17. Jesus says this, So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. When I do something for Jesus, when I am serving in the kingdom, when I am doing the work that he's called me to do, am I do it because I'm compelled? In other words, that I have this vision of the gospel and that if I don't do it, I feel like somehow I'm not doing my duty or am I looking, am I doing it for the reward? Now, listen, it doesn't have to be monetary reward. It can be the reward that when people see you walk by, they go, goes that awesome teacher there goes that awesome preacher there goes that wonderful servant right and sometimes we look for the reward of what status even in the kingdom listen at the cross the ground is level there is no one better or worse than another we're all here there are different functions and there are different roles but in the kingdom we're all on the same ground we have different functions but, but it's all level ground. And, and, and I've seen this in the, in the kingdom. And you, some of you have experienced this, where there seems to be some, some better Christians and some not so good Christians. And the better Christians get all the acclaim and the prestige. They're usually the ones that are very vocal and outgoing. And, and maybe they're up front. But there, there seems to be classes even in the kingdoms. And listen, this should not be in the kingdom. And so when I serve, when Jesus said this in Luke 17, you should just say, I just am doing what I'm supposed to do. That's why we serve. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. And what Paul says is, if I don't do it, woe is me that I have to do this. There's, there's things that I need to do. And am I looking for applause and approval? Am I looking for a title? Am I looking for a parking spot with my name on it? Am I looking for an office? Am I looking for this? Am I looking for that? And what I'm doing is I'm serving because of the compensation and not just because I, I have to, because if I don't, I don't know what else I would do. That's what Paul's saying from compensation. For Second Corinthians, he says this, For Christ's love compels us. What does it do? It's the love of Christ that moves it. Listen, we serve because we love Jesus. What has Jesus done for you? Saved you from your sins so that you don't have to spend eternity in hell. Does he have to do anything else? Not really. Does he do other things? Absolutely. You've testified. We heard your testimonies at our Thanksgiving service. God has done great things, right? But what does God have to do besides what he's already done? Nothing. He has opened the doors of heaven and we can have eternal life because of Jesus. And that, that, that is enough for me to love Jesus. If he doesn't do another thing in my life, that is enough. And it's the love of Jesus, it's because of the love for that, that, what does it do? It compels me. It pushes me. It gets me out there. Uh, maybe on Thanksgiving, you were making dinner. And what do you say? Oh, I just have to try this. What is that? You're compelled. Because you think it's going to taste good. And so, I'm com- that have to is the, is the compulsion. It's not that somebody's standing over you and grading you and pushing you, but it's because of the love of Jesus. What, look what Paul says in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. What Paul says is the compulsion is the thing that gets me to go because I recognize Jesus died for me. And so sometimes we don't serve because we are waiting for the reward. Whatever the reward is, it doesn't have to be monetary, but it can be all kinds of things. Now listen, yes, we are to encourage and we are to be thankful and we are to have gratitude for ministry and serve, right? There is, there, is, there is a great payment of when somebody says thank you, isn't there? Like there's a reward for that. You give someone a gift and they run away with it and you don't hear from them. It hurts a little gratitude and thanks are great things. That's why we had Thanksgiving, because we can stop and give thanks to the Lord. So thanks is a, is a reward for the blessing. However, I have to be careful. Am I just serving for the thanks? 
Am I doing it because, boy, you know, if I do this, somebody's going to notice. And then somebody's going to come up and say, man, you are awesome. See my motive? Should, is that, should that come? Yes. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with thanks. And they say, you know what? You really blessed me. Or, or thank you for the ways that you've helped me. We need to be doing that with one another. Encouraging and, and being thankful. But I always have to check my heart. Is am I doing it because I'm just compelled because Jesus died for me and there's the gospel? Or am I doing it because I want some kind of recognition? And it's, very, it's a very uh, a hard line to find at times in our, in our lives. And so in, in, our, in our lives, we have... Paul's going to talk about that in, in chapters 12 and 14 that we get to next year. Every believer needs a place of ministry. Every believer. Every believer needs a place of ministry. Every believer needs to be doing something in the kingdom. Why? Because of the love of Jesus. It, it, it's not because you like somebody. It's not because you want to help them out. It's, it's because Jesus died for us, and the love of Jesus compels us. And so sometimes we look for compensation and title and praise and spotlight. And in 1 Corinthians, what happened? How were some folks looking for compensation? By They were being divisive. They had little followers, and they had people that were loyal to them, and it was causing divisions in the church. And so sometimes we can serve because we know that we can gain a group of people around us. And they're going to, not physically, but symbolically, hoist us on their shoulders and march us around as the little king of the kingdom. And Paul brings us back and he says, listen, we don't demand from others, but we ourselves are not willing to give up. We don't ask other people to do what we ourselves are not willing to do. That's the whole point of chapter 9, is that we... Paul says, I'm not asking you to do something that, that I am not asking to do. So Paul says, do I serve from compulsion or compensation? Listen, I know this is a tricky area, especially for those of us in paid ministry. It can be a tricky area because you're not serving for compensation, but you're compelled to preach the gospel. One commentator said this, congregations should not think of their giving as providing a salary, However, in ways that tempt them to demand satisfaction of their personal win. Listen, he says, the church does not pay its ministers. Rather, it provides them with resources so they are able to serve freely. I've not heard many people say that uh, through the years. I think I heard maybe one or two, and uh, I, I took care of them afterwards. But they said this, we pay your salary. I'm like, dude, no, you don't. You give to the Lord. You're not giving to me. You're giving to the Lord. And so you're, you're just free me up to do the things that I do. But there is a case to be made for tent making. Because if, you, if there's those in, that are, are, are doing their living in the gospel, and so Paul says, I'm going to take that excuse out. That's what he's going to do with the Corinthians. He didn't want them to say, Paul, we pay your salary, so you better do what we want you to do. Paul's like, nope, I'm going to eliminate that. So there is a case for, for that tent making. And Paul's not laying down a rule for that all to be for everybody to follow. But what he's saying is, we just can't demand from others what we are not willing to do for ourselves. So, we all need volunteer ministries. We, all of us do. And so even as, as paid minister, as paid ministry, I look for ways to, to volunteer, to do things that aren't necessarily what I'm supposed to do. So there are lots of jobs, and there are lots of things around that I say, you know what, this is not why I'm here. This is not what a, 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 a pastor does necessarily, but I'm going to do this because this is a way for me to give back to the kingdom something over and above in the ways to volunteer. So I'll put the rubber gloves on and clean the toilets if they're messy. Take out the trash, mow the grass, do whatever we need to do. Why? Because, because it's the gospel that compels, right? It's the love for Jesus that compels. And so we do above and beyond what we are called to do. So it's, it's a hard line, but we all need those places to volunteer. The third ministry muzzle is this. Do I focus on my rights or the reward? Look what Paul says in verse 18. What then is my reward? That in preaching the gospel, I may offer free a charge, and so may not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. He used the word gospel how many times in chapter 9? Over and over and over and over. So Paul, his, his pay turns out to be this. Total freedom from human impositions on his ministry. That's Paul's pay. He is getting paid in a way that's beneficial to him. And the way is this, that he is getting paid 
by not getting paid because he's able to preach the gospel. And what he says in verse 18 is, I have not made full use of my rights or even I've not abused my rights. And really, that's the key that Paul is saying is, yes, we have rights. But he said, I'm not making full use of them and I'm not abusing my rights to be a hindrance to the church. And as believers, we don't make full use of our our rights and we don't abuse our rights because we don't want to hinder the body of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. And the very practical way that he's, the the illustration he's using is in the area of compensation. Now, Paul did at times accept money from churches. In Philippians chapter 4, there was a gift that was coming to him, right? There, There was those places that he has accepted gifts from churches. But here's the thing. Look at verse 15. He says, I have not made any use of these rights, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. Listen, we can be very passive aggressive sometimes. Hmm. Do you need anything? No. No. My kids don't have shoes. That's okay. I don't, I don't, no, I don't need anything. Do you need any, do you need, do you need some money? No, 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 that's okay. I'm not, I don't want to use that right. I don't have any lights at home because the power was turned off. But no, 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 you keep your money. See, instead of just being honest and saying, hey, I could use some help. Paul's saying, listen, I'm not writing this chapter 9, so that when you get through chapter 9, you're like, man, we feel really sorry for Paul. We need to give him some money. That's not, Paul's like, no, because if you do that, you're taking away the whole reason I'm writing chapter 9. And so what he says is, he has taken money, but he's just not taking it from the Corinthians because of the situation at Corinth with all the other people that are in Corinth. And so, do I focus on my privileges? In other words... Just because I can do something in the kingdom or because I have a title or do I look do I look at that or do I look at the payoff and what's the payoff the payoff is the gospel as we serve what happens other folks hear the gospel and other folks understand the gospel and other folks know what Jesus did for them by our attitude of service we never say you know what that job's too good for me I'm not going to do that that's for someone else in the kingdom, everything is everyone's responsibility. And so Paul says that I focus on my privileges. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm starting verse 4. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. It's on your notes. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmers should be the first to receive the share of the crops. You see what Paul's saying? It's the same thing. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. There it is. That's the payoff. Even though Paul was literally in prison, he knew God's word was not chained. And look what he says. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Who's the elect? That are those who have received the gift of salvation, right? There's those who have heard the gospel. So what Paul is saying is, I'm not focusing on my privileges, but I'm focusing on the payoff. And what is this? That they too may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The payoff is that one day Jesus is returning and uh, we're going to receive the crown of life. We're going to receive the victor's crown. We're going to do all those things. Paul says, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's the the ultimate payoff. And so what Paul says is this, because I'm compelled by the love of Jesus, and because I'm doing this, I'm going to put up with a whole bunch of stuff. Why? Because I want you to know Jesus. That would revolutionize the church, wouldn't it? How do you think the world views the church? Well, not very favorably, because we want it our way. We want it the way we want it. And what if we had that attitude that I'm focusing on the payoff and not my privileges? In other words, not because I can do something, but I'm going to not do it for the sake of the gospel. What if the gospel was the, was the motivator? And what if the goal of someone knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and obtaining the eternal salvation of Jesus, what if that was our goal? Think about how many silly arguments would just fall apart. Things we fuss and fume over, all those things in uh, chapter 8. The things we get upset in, uh, upset about in the kingdom of God. I mean, all those things. And Paul says, listen, if you have the focus on the payoff, what's the payoff? Eternal life in Jesus Christ. 
And so Paul says, I'm giving up my privileges. Paul had every right to do it. And he provides an example for us that it doesn't have to be my way or the highway. It can be your way with the payoff of the gospel. Here's the ultimate payoff. Luke chapter 14, verse 8, Jesus says this. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may be invited. If so, the host invited both of you will come to you and say, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. Jesus is saying, well, Paul's saying the same thing Jesus just said. If you're looking for the thing, if if, if that's your goal, is to have the best seat, to be honored, you're not going to get it. But in God's kingdom, it's upside down. And what Jesus said is what? You go to the lowest place. You go to the least place. And then when you do, guess what? You can only move up. And then you will be honored. And what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 9 is that very thing. He said, I have my rights. I could have taken the most important seat at the banquet. I could have demanded this compensation, but I didn't do it. Why? Because the honor is going to come from Jesus. Philippians 3.14, he says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I press on and I do the thing. And I, I go because what? Because of the gospel of Jesus. So how does 1 Corinthians 9 apply to us? Well, because sometimes we are in it for the best seat at the table. We we serve and we minister and we want to be noticed. And and both Paul and Jesus said, no, that's not how it is. You be a humble, humble person who's willing to take the lowest place. And when you take this lowest place, you take it because you're compelled by love. You don't sit there and complain I had to take this lowest place because Jesus told me to. No, I take it because of my love for Jesus. Because I know that Paul said, I am nothing. Without his grace, none of us are anything. And so in the kingdom, we all, what, what would happen if we all rushed for the lowest seat instead of the most prominent place? I think we would be much healthier Because we're not looking for prestige, we're not looking for position, we're not looking for accolades, we're not looking for people to follow us, we are not beholden to people, instead we serve. And what happens then? Even if I'm at that lowest seat my entire life, one day the trumpet's going to sound and Jesus is going to return, and what's he going to say? Well done, good and faithful, what? Servant, you're still there. Welcome into the joys of your Father. We serve because of the gospel. The gospel is our motivator. Listen, it is difficult serving in the kingdom. Do you know why? Because other people have to serve with you. That's why it's difficult. We all, we all bring to the table quirks and annoyances and things that get under everybody's skin. We, we all do. We, we just all do. You might have experienced that on Thursday at your Thanksgiving celebrate, Right? It's like, ugh, I forgot. What time's your flight leave tomorrow? We just all do. But the humble person says, what? I'm, I'm willing to, because of my love for Jesus. I'm not in it to make you like me. I'm not in it so that you think I'm great. I'm not in it so that you say, wow, you're a wonderful servant. I'm in it because Jesus' love compels us because he died for us. So how does 1 Corinthians 9 impact our lives, and Paul's talking about his compensation, it applies in many ways. Sometimes we can put a, we can hinder the gospel because we're demanding to have it our way. Listen, God is more interested in people than institutions. He loves people. And he wants us to love people. And that's why it's so hard to be a follower of Jesus. Someone told me a couple weeks ago, man, if I knew marriage was this hard... I would never have gotten married. I said, me too. This, this is just honest, right? But Jesus didn't do that to us. He said, if you follow me, you need to count the costs. You need to take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow me. 
You see, Jesus, on the wedding day, when we became the bride of Christ, when we received that gift of salvation, Jesus said, here's everything that you're going to experience. Hardship and persecution and misunderstanding and difficulties, and you're not going to be blessed sometimes, and it's going to be a hard row to hoe. It's going to be all of those things. Jesus told us. He just did. On the wedding day, he said, it's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult. But it's a love for him that compels us. It's through those difficult times. It's our love for Jesus. When we say, I can't not do this because of what Jesus has done for me. And you know what grace is? Grace is when we realize how awful we are, how great God is, and what he's done for us in Jesus that none of us has a reason to boast. So sometimes I forget about grace. So would you take the lowest seat at the table in the kingdom? Would you focus on the gospel of Jesus as the, as the goal? The, would you focus on, on the payoff, which is eternal life in Jesus, and not just the privileges that we, that we have in the kingdom? And just because I can do something doesn't mean I should do something, because I'm always thinking about the other person. And listen, the payoff is awesome. What does Paul say? I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let's stand and pray. Father, we sometimes in the kingdom, as we, we, we don't serve because we think it's someone else's job, or we don't serve because we, don't, we want something out of it, or, Father, we do serve, and then we're, we're very frustrated because we're not getting what we think we should be getting. So, God, over these next few moments, as we just surrender to you as a, as a follower of Jesus, would you instill in us just that compulsion because of your love for us to serve? Because of our love for you, because of what you've done for us in forgiving us of our sins. And if nothing else was ever given to us, that that would be enough for us to be compelled to serve. It gets us through those difficult times. It gets us through those times when people get under our skin. It gets us through those difficult times when people misunderstand. And, and all. That's what gets us through, is because we are compelled by your love, by our love for you that we have in Jesus. Father, would you help us to focus on the gospel? And the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, that those without Jesus are lost for eternity without him, that that is our motivator as we serve others, as we uh, even relate to uh, non-believers, that it's the, it, the gospel is the thing. Not our opinions, not our preferences, not our wants, not how we think things should be, but God, the gospel. And we thank you for Paul's example, that even though he had the right to do many, many things, it was certainly moral within your word. It was certainly legal within the, uh, the, the Corinthian city. But God, he didn't do it because he knew there was a greater issue at stake and the issue is always the gospel. Oh Lord, would you help us to get over our pettiness and our small-mindedness and the ways that we grumble and complain because we are not focused on the gospel of Jesus. Would we be compelled by the love we have for Jesus? So, Father, these next few moments, we simply just give you our hearts. And as we take that lowest seat at the table, we know that we will be raised to honor because your kingdom is upside down. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.